Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am the perennially pugnacious Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who once commanded an army of sentient crabs while stranded on a desert island for 27 months. Mr. Ryan Seabold! What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? Nice, nice. Lovely falsetto there. Really uh, dig that. I am doing tremendous. I am having myself a good day. Uh, One thing that uh, I am not currently in command of, though, is an army of crabs. I command the microphone, not so much armies of crustaceans so it sounds like there's an interesting story to be told from it there is there is i'll get to it in just a minute i'm googling perennial uh and pugnacious i just want to see how (laughs) (laughs) i'm coming with them coming with the the vocab these days yeah got that big thesaurus energy i appreciate you yeah i thought so i thought perennial like about isn't like perennium isn't that like your taint or something like that wasn't that people like sunning their perennium oh, or is something the perennium i think something and uh, okay. i also know there's like uh i also know there's a pineal gland from it's not reanimator from beyond the okay. other the other one he did no uh, no perennial it's uh like the flower okay do you do you know the do you know the the quality of flowers why they're called perennials no no because they bloom once a year. Go figure. Interesting. So, like, yeah, like my genitals. It just doesn't happen as often as it used to, buddy. <laughs> I'm a busy man. I'm a busy man. I'm a busy man with my army of crabs that I've been, uh, you know, fighting against. I got a bad case of crabs um, during spring Oof. break. Yeah, it was it was terrible. I got the ointment, and all that happened was they left me but they stayed around my house. They started living in my carpet and this and that, you know, I, I still see one now and then they're, they're around my house. It's, it's, it's no good, dude. Okay. So now here's the thing. So that, th- that's all good and well. And it sounds like maybe that trained you for like this later experience where you ended up stranded on the desert Island. Was it those same crabs? Like, did they go with you? Because when I heard the they story, always go I with assumed... you. Yes, this is the thing about crabs, buddy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so it's not like so. So it's not like you like you know trained a, an army of crabs while you were on the uh, island. I'm so... You actually brought crabs with you and then yes. trained them. In, by the way, instantly regretting taking the low hanging fruit on this improv bit. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I went with the easiest answer, the first thing that came to mind about the crabs, and um, boy, am I regretting going with that. <laughs> hey, whatever, buddy, we're here, and you made your decision, so stand behind it and keep it going, damn it. I'm rolling right. with you, buddy. I'm yes-ending as best I can here. Yeah, yeah, no, you're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. Yes, I'm on the, so I'm on the island. 
uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Heavy editing on this bit. (laughs) No, no, I'm leaving all this in. Um, No, dude, come on, man. It was right there. I just, I... You're, in, you're on an island standing before an army of 27 crabs that are looking up to you waiting for direction. And you left that on the table. You left it on the table. You could have been having them build a fucking uh, Swiss Army, Swiss Family Robinson, you know, palatial desert palace for you. And, and, and now, no. Now, now you've just got crabs. J- now I just, hey, th- I've always said that. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's in, we'll just my, go ahead uh, that's and, uh, in my Instagram bio. Now you just have awesome. crabs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose we should just uh, go ahead and uh, pull the ripcord on this one and let's get a description. Crabs about the movie. can't make houses, Jason. They don't have hammers and nails and the tools of modern society. I mean, uh, I guess maybe so... they could, like, you know, use vines uh, and wrap them around bamboo, perhaps, but they're so you small. You have so much to learn about crabs. You have so much to learn about crabs, dude. There's so much, but there's so much more versatile than you're giving them credit for. But that's okay. We'll come back to crabs another day. In the meantime, we have a movie we'll to come discuss. Back to crabs another day. Yes, absolutely, Jason. Today's film is Phantom <laughs> Thread from 2017, directed and shot by Paul Thomas Anderson. Google has this summarized as renowned dressmaker Reynolds Woodcock and his sister. I just wanted to say that. Reynolds Woodcock. Reynolds Woodcock. It's a hard K at the end. You got to really land that K. Uh, And his sister Cyril are at the center of British fashion in the 1950s (laughs) London, dressing royalty, movie stars, heiresses, socialites, and debutantes. Women come and go in Woodcock's life, providing the confirmed bachelor with inspiration and companionship, his carefully tailored existence soon gets disrupted by Alma, a young and strong-willed woman who becomes his muse and lover. Starring Daniel Day-Lewis, Leslie Manfield, Vicky Creeps, and a bunch of other people, but they don't matter. Jason, what did you think about this movie, buddy? As always, I'm going to be happy to tell you right after we listen to the trailer for Phantom Thread. You can sew almost anything into the canvas of a coat. When I was a boy, I started to hide things in the linings of the garments. Things that only I knew were there. Secrets. Good morning. Will you have dinner with me? Yes. I feel as if I've been looking for you for a very long time. You look beautiful. Very beautiful. I have things I want to do. Things I simply cannot do without you. Reynolds has made my dreams come true. And I have given him what he desires most in return. (laughs) Every piece of me. Stop. There 
There's an air of quiet death in this house. You're not cursed. You're loved by me. Stop playing this game. What game? What precisely is the nature of my game? All your rules and your clothes and all this money and everything is a game. This was an ambush. Stop. Are you sent here to ruin my evening and possibly my entire life? Stop it! Whatever you do, do it carefully. All right, Ryan. Now, before we talk about this film, couple things that I want to ask you. First, were you looking forward to this film or not? Okay. Uh, first, meh. <laughs> Same. Well, let, let, let me go ahead and, and clarify very, very quickly. Um, yes, I will start by saying yes because I was glad to finally have an excuse to get into this film. I've heard good things. It got great reviews. Sure. It's Paul Thomas Anderson. I have not seen PTA's last few films, and that's on me. It's nothing to do with like, oh, I didn't want to, or they just, inherent vice, I saw half of the master, and I just couldn't really quite sink my teeth into that film, which is a bummer, because I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. But um, inherent vice, Phantom Thread, and Licorice Pizza all have eluded me, and bummer. Okay. So when you picked Phantom Thread... I was like, good, hold my fucking feet to the coals or whatever the saying is. Like, <laughs> let's make this happen because I need to start watching yeah. some of these. Um, I think he is one of the greatest filmmakers of our generation. And shame Absolutely. on me I agree. Uh, for letting any of these films slip past me. And so I was, I'm glad that I've got to see this. I don't hate myself for seeing this. So yeah, uh, that's a little cool. more detailed answer. But, but at the yeah, same time, that's... like, you know, just the subject matter and, and you know, it just looks too highfalutin and haughty and in high per, sure. you know i don't know upper crusty uh for no, me so I, I completely get that yeah i was very much of the same opinion i'm glad i was forced to watch it <laughs> carry yeah, on yeah it was a movie that i had it was actually so it's to date the only movie of his that i actually haven't seen at all though when people ask me i also say that i haven't seen his first film hard eight because i saw it once in college and do not remember a single scene at all. Don't remember anything about that film. So for all intents and purposes, I'm just going to say I haven't seen it. But I think that one's that, on our list, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have cool. seen all of his films except for Phantom Threat, including Licorice Pizza. And to your point, I'm actually of a similar opinion, or at least I was, of The Master, where I watched The Master when it came out. Didn't enjoy it. And same thing for Inherent Vice. Didn't enjoy that one. Now, I did enjoy Licorice Pizza recently, but I will also admit that I found it to be somewhat overrated. I did not enjoy it as much as everyone else did. You know, I didn't think it was a best picture of the year. Like, I wouldn't put it in my top ten. But it was a very good movie. So I'd still give it a solid four out of five stars and recommend that people see it. But I didn't think it was a great film. And I thought it was sure. bloated. Very much so. Yeah. So, yeah. And then to your point, like, you know, hold it against me. You tell me that uh, you're making a film about a dressmaker. Uh, you know, period piece about a dressmaker. It's not the type of film that uh, wets my whistle. You know, I, I don't get hard over films like that. You know, it's this prestige sort of period piece a little bit. And, you know, when I do watch these films, I do tend to like them, right? Like we both really enjoyed Portrait of a Lady on Fire uh, right. in season one. And so, but it's just not that film, right? Like we're guys that enjoy robots and monsters and crazy shit and A24 and all these different things. So, you know. It's just, a, it was one of those things where the subject matter didn't immediately grab me where it's like, oh, dude, I got to go see that. 
So yeah, I don't think I would have seen it either. And I think that's probably why I put it on this list. I'm totally okay with a slow paced art house film. Um, this year, sure. uh, and I'm going to go ahead and come right out with it and say, uh, this is a masterpiece. This is a beautifully wonderful film that was perfectly yep. and wonderfully made. Um, I have Absolutely. in my notes right here, this is, a, but just again, going back to the subject matter, I have in my notes here, uh, this is a masterpiece film made for people who read the New Yorker. And um, I just don't know that that's, you know, I, I opened this show talking about perineum sunning in, in a case of crap. So, you know, <laughs> just keeping it real. Um, but all that to say, I, I enjoyed this movie way more than I expected. Um, I uh, I got a lot of notes here. I got a lot of things yeah. to say. There's a lot Same. of thought to love. There's a lot to not like about this film. If someone came to me and said it's not their cup of tea, um, I'd say... Yeah, spot on. But if you, um, <laughs> you know, if you love this film, cool on you too. Like I don't really have, I can't say one way or another. This is, this is a really divisive movie for me anyway. Interesting. Well, I can tell you that I certainly do not read the New Yorker. Uh, I've always been more of an LA <laughs> times guy myself, yeah. but I adored this film. I, okay. I loved this film so, yeah. so much. And we're going to go ahead and get into exactly why over the course of this discussion. Now, interestingly enough, we open with a very brief title card, and we've actually got these sort of like haunting synth sounds, and then we get Anna Perna's like movie studio intro, which is like black and white static on a television. So like for three seconds, I thought we were watching a horror film and I had maybe started the wrong movie, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. Um, and then it progresses forward and we get the close up of a beautiful woman bathed in this very lovely orange firelight. This woman would be revealed very quickly as Alma played by Vicky creeps. Very funny thing, Ryan. I think that we're on our seventh film, maybe of the season or so. I forget exactly. Okay. This is now the third film where the storytelling device has been one of the main characters, if not the protagonist, being interviewed by someone else and having right. them. I thought the same thing. I thought the same exact that? thing. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, we're talking all over the place, right? Amadeus's early eighties. This film was twenty seventeen. I believe. Yep. And then we've got what was the other film? Following, following, which is 1999. So yeah. all over, there's not even like, oh, this was the hot thing to do at the time. It was kind of just a coincidence that's happened. That's very funny. Uh, yeah. And we're, you know, talking, uh, you know, Chris Nolan, Milos Forman, and now Paul Thomas Anderson. So, you know, these are some heavy yeah. hitters that heavy hitters absolutely. are just going into some, you know, all, all doing some the, the same kind of film tropes, but good on them. It works, I guess. It's a good, like you said, it's a good plot device. <laughs> the films speak for themselves, yeah. And uh, Alma is played by, by an actress by the name of Vicky Creeps, like we've mentioned. And she's not necessarily the protagonist, but she is just as important to the story. And there's probably even an argument to be made that she could be considered the protagonist. I have that in my I notes as well. We'll talk about that yeah. in a few. Yeah. So now when the film starts off, very pointed dialogue as she explains being interviewed that she, when it comes to Mr. Woodcock Reynolds, she, quote, finally received everything she wanted and all she had to give was everything. This is going to kind of set up the primary dynamic of their relationship. And, and for what it's worth, Reynolds' relationship with women in general. Very early on, we're going to get a, a number of scenes that indicate that he's this very domineering subject 
It's not dissimilar from the character that Day-Lewis played in Paul Thomas Anderson's own There Will Be Blood 10 years earlier. However, he's not necessarily as domineering and intense and wants to make everyone pay, though you could argue that maybe he does in his own way. And we're introduced to Reynolds at the beginning of the movie by him getting dressed in front of a mirror. We see him sort of primping. He's doing a lot of, you know, putting on makeup and making sure his hair is just right. So it's somebody that puts a lot of effort into appearance. And we would go on to find out that there's a reason because he's a very public figure. He's a very renowned figure. And his dresses are pined after by people far and wide. He's making dresses for royalty and France and such. And not only that, but he has a large team of women that work for him making the dresses. And we see this right up front where there's a number of shots of all the women coming into the house that he lives in to start off their day. And this is where they make all of their dresses. And Ryan, there are a number of aspects of this film that we're going to get into because there's a lot to talk about as far as both the technical elements as well as the story elements. But the first aspect of the film that I would like to talk to you about is the cinematography. Now, yes. There's some interesting choices here. Rather than set you up, let me just ask you what you thought of the cinematography. And by the way, did you happen to catch who the cinematographer was? Uh, I think I set it up right at the top of the show. It was a Mr. Paul Thomas Anderson himself, although he is yes, uncredited. Um, he leaned heavily on his gaffer, Michael Bauman, uh, who he's worked with for a long time um, as far as getting the looks right. Uh, I did a lot of research into this, actually, and watched camera. There's actually really cool camera tests um, online uh, with Paul Thomas Anderson narrating and explaining what he was oh, wow. going through. Is that, on, um, uh, is that on YouTube that people can check out? I believe so, yes. Um, okay. I found it on, uh, yes, it's right here on, um, it is, there is a link on YouTube. I found it on nofilmschool.com. But um, okay. yeah, there's an amazing deleted scene with Daniel Day-Lewis and uh, Leslie Manfield where they're going back and forth in a food fight. And Daniel Day Lewis spits, yeah, I saw uh, that. Takes, takes a sip of his tea. You saw that and spits it on her. Yeah, <laughs> and she's like, "That was my favorite dress." And he's like, "Well, I'm glad it wasn't your second favorite dress. That would have been a waste of good tea." <laughs> By the shit. way, I have to mention before we continue that when you read the description, I went the whole movie without knowing that she was his sister. Yeah, so I only knew that because I looked it up. They never actually mentioned that in the film. Right, right. Well, I thought she was just like a very close. I honestly thought it was kind of supposed to be like, like the closest person to him is his assistant. I thought that she was his assistant and it was supposed to be this character attribute where it's like, you know, he yeah. doesn't have any family and the closest person to him is his assistant or something like that. Right. Okay. Um, I do believe there's a brief mention of it when he's talking about his mother. And um, who's dead and who he sees in the visions when he has the fever and all of that. And he does this like Mm -hmm. monologue where he's talking about uh, it was his sister who saved him and came on board. And that, you know, because his mom wouldn't have anything to do like his mom and his grandma and stuff wouldn't have anything to do with him. Uh, wouldn't sew with him. Remember, he had to do the whole thing by himself at like 16 years old. He taught himself and all this stuff. So he goes into this yeah. monologue about the hardships of his, uh, you know, starting out in the business and stuff and how he was self-taught and all these things and uh, all the care that he put into these dresses and that it was his sister that ended up teaming up and, and keeping him on track. And so, uh, but outside of that, uh, I only knew because I, again, I looked it up in in articles and stuff like that after the fact. Yeah, now it's a very it's a very distinctive look. So the first thing that jumps out to you right out of the gate is how noisy the the overall yep. image is. 
Yes. Now, was this shot on film? Did you happen to see? I did. So, uh, yeah, um, he did a lot of camera tests for this. Uh, supposedly, Paul Thomas Anderson knows lenses like no other director. He's got a library okay. of lenses he loves to use. He does camera tests out the wazoo. Um, but yes, this was shot on 35 millimeter Kodak stock. Uh, he wanted to shoot on fine grain. Um, and, but then, so they had a real trouble, uh, with this, not, they went into this, not wanting it to look super polished and look like the crown. That was kind of okay. the big thing was like, you know, if we do this, uh, like a prestige film and make it look too polished, it's going to look like the crown and the crown is great. And Got they it. said they have nothing bad to say about the crown. They love the crown. They love the way it looks. But this, they wanted it to look a little grittier, a little more vintage. Um, they really yeah. wanted it. They, you know, he's a big fan of Stanley Kubrick, uh, and he wanted to kind of go back to this authenticity. So they shot on 35 millimeter stock on, and they lit it very uh, in very low light, and then they pushed it to stop in post, which takes the grain oh, wow. and builds it up. So if you yeah. think of like digital noise, when you go to the exposure slider and your coloring tab on uh, Adobe Premiere. Or, or your editing software, you know, when you push it too far, you're going to start to see digital noise in the blacks and all of that. Well, the same thing happens in yeah. film stock. It takes those grain that your film grain and like, you know, really uh, shows it for what it is. So they underexposed this whole film by about a stop, stop and a half. And then they pushed it in post to um, even make the grain even more prominent. Uh, pair that with the fact wow. that they were using uh, a lot of vintage lenses. They did use... Uh, some uh, Panavision ultra speed uh, zoom lenses, but uh, mostly they used in the camera test. He was using Zeiss Jana lenses, which are like post-war oh, wow. uh, Zeiss lenses. I also read online. He loves to use what's called the Gordy 40, which is a 40 millimeter lens that Gordon Willis used by Bosch and Loam. Uh, it's a super hmm. Balton. Uh, Super Baltar 40 millimeter that he shot um, all of Godfather one and two with and one lens. Uh, notoriously okay. Gordon Willis is just fucking crazy. So um, anyways, yeah, uh, all that to say. And then the haze that he brought in, uh, which admittedly uh, Michael Bauman said in an interview that I read uh, was there's several shots in this movie that he goes back and says, yeah, we went a little heavy there. Um, but I guess a lot of these locations they were filming in over in Europe uh, were super drafty. And so they would just get the haze just right. And then they'd say action and all the haze would dissolve by the end of the shot and it wouldn't look consistent. So a lot mm. of these um, shots, they loaded the room with haze with a hazer, which is like a fog machine, but it lingers in the sure. air instead of settling on the ground. And okay. um, so some of these shots are like so thick with haze. And then you add in the yeah. film grain and pushing it to stop and all of that. So it looks like <laughs> so... Um, uh, you know, and then the other thing he did too, um, I don't mean to steal this conversation, but you asked me a question and I did quite a bit of research on this because one thing I will say about this film is the look is very distinct and I wanted to know yes. why, but that is, uh, they used a lot of, uh, low contrast lighting and low con filters and fill lighting. They used a lot of LEDs. They, the lighting in a lot of these shots is completely flat, which is, not usually the way Paul Thomas Anderson goes. He usually shoots very contrasty and very dark shadows and coming out of the darkness. You think about, you know, everything from Boogie Nights to There Will Be Blood, Magnolia, you know, any of these films are, you know, very unevenly lit films or noir style lighting and stuff like that. But um, the lighting in this film is very flat, very soft, very pleasing to the skin. Everything is beautiful in this film. And... Uh, I'm going to get a little a little more into this as we get along into the film, but 
uh, yeah, um, PTA crushed it, as did uh, Michael Bauman, um, as they teamed up to do this. Uh, very, very intentional, the look of this film, and I think it worked very, very well. Now, at breakfast, we get a scene that really tells us a lot about who this character is. It's one of our first introductions to Reynolds, really in terms of getting to understand who he is as a person, outside of just what he is. And we're introduced to him and his wife. And while they're at breakfast, he's just sitting there and he's sketching. She keeps trying to get his attention and, you know, offer a pastry or something like that. And he just completely ignores her, doesn't really want anything to do with her. And then she mentions something about how, given their relationship, he should just leave her. And then he starts to get a little distraught and says that he can't start his day with confrontation and kind of gets up and walks away. So... Now, this is a great introduction to the character because, again, we understand that this is sort of a very cold, calculating man. He's not afraid of being domineering. He expresses several times early on that he is, you know, a strong person and he doesn't, he doesn't need anyone. And that's something that's going to carry throughout the film with this person. Now, very quickly, he decides that he's going to leave his wife. He kind of consults with Cyril, who now I understand is his sister, uh, but is also sort of just like his caretaker, personal assistant, manages his schedule, one of those, basically like a like a personal assistant that manages all of his affairs. And she's always there in that same respect. And at he goes to the countryside, goes to a restaurant, orders this enormous breakfast with way too much food from a very pretty waitress who is Alma. He quickly asks her out and over dinner, we see a couple of Really interesting character traits as well. So, well, Ryan, hang I on. thought this was a... So, I hope you're not skipping over the horniest breakfast order of all time, because this fucking stood out to me. <laughs> okay. Fucking, yeah. Did you not... Did that not make you uncomfortable, or did that not stand out like a sore thumb? The, the, he's like, yes, I... I want the scones. And she's like, mm-hmm. And he's like, yes, I want the oh, pajam on it. <laughs> and then he's like, can you remember that? He's like, I want the copy of your order. And then he like kept that. And he like, oh, yeah. Like he was all into her handwriting and shit. I was like, what the fuck is this? He just meets this poor country girl. And he's like super rapey vibes. <laughs> and uh, then they move from that to the next scene, which is the horniest dinner of all time. I'm like, geez, man, this guy. Smooth operator, I guess, because she's in. That's it. funny. Honestly, I didn't. I didn't. I can't really say that I picked up on the same thing. I mean, I I understood that there was a certain level of attraction, and that he's like you know trying to be Mister Smooth or whatever. But I didn't really get that same vibe until actually later for me. It was when they actually uh, he takes her back home in a, in a couple scenes here, and they do the whole fitting. To me, that was like the scene where he kind of went because to me, I thought that he was, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is just how we interpret behaviors or something, but I kind of thought that he was trying to be just, you know, in that sort of like great Gatsby guy, right? Like he's, he can order all the stuff off the menu. Money is no object. He's obviously a handsome man. He dresses very well. He takes care of his appearance, makes firm eye contact when he's talking to her. And then after he orders all of the food, he ends up asking her out very directly. And yeah. yeah, and I think that the whole part is, so if anything, the whole part about him keeping the ticket, I thought was a little bit creepy to a degree, or it was just an interesting character. Decision, just seemed really right? horny to him. me. 
See, I think it was, I think it was, I think it was more, I don't think it was that. I think it, I think it lent itself to this. He's constantly exerting his power. And we're going to actually get to that in the next scene at dinner because I thought it was the same thing there. But I think it's just like, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm going to take that or something because I can. And we see that in this next scene where they go to dinner and there's a couple of very interesting traits that come out about him. So the first is that they're having this discussion and they end up talking about how, He likes to hide objects in the lining of clothes, right? And this is something that he's done since he was very young. And it's sort of like a little secret that as the dressmaker, you can do these little Easter egg type things, right? And nobody's going to know it's there. And it's kind of your special thing that only you know about. And, well, I have an interpretation of that, but I'll, I'll ask you yours here in a second too. Because then from there, he also kind of makes a move where he tells Alma basically, hey, your lipstick. I don't like that. Take it off right now. And like hands her a napkin and like just, or, or I think he wipes it off of her lips, maybe himself. And I so, believe he does. Yeah. I yeah. think that's a, a power dynamic scenario. And he says, I like to see women, how they, how they really look or something along Correct. those lines. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So what did you think about those little touches as far as, you know, you know, what day Lewis was bringing and what the script was saying? This whole thing, including breakfast, um, I think is kind of, you know, it's really important. Obviously, it's setting up Daniel Day-Lewis's power dynamic, his chauvinistic, you know, side and all of this. Um, but I think it's equally setting up Alma's character and her character arc uh, and and how we see her at the end of the film versus the beginning of the film and, and then the changes that she goes through. Because for all intents and purposes, Daniel Day-Lewis is mostly the same. It's... um uh, Alma that kind of changes throughout and um, she you know she has an impact on him but um, I think that they they learn by the end of the film how to deal with each other the way that they are versus actually changing so uh, yeah I think it's how she responds to to these things that makes it so important more than yeah. him doing them because we've already seen him be an ass from the opening of the film and then he has a dinner with his sister where she agrees to get rid of his current girlfriend and give her a dress as like a parting gift. So you always see, already see him being petty. And she's like, why don't you go to the country and I'll get, you know, get rid of her. So the whole reason he's on the, at the countryside is because he's ditching a confrontation um, so that his sister can take out the trash, so to speak. Yeah. So we already kind of are introduced to him by this point as a piece of shit. And so, uh, you know, very pompous and, and high society. He drives his fancy car to the con- to his country home and all of this, uh, which is beautiful yeah. and, and a state like. Um, so these scenes uh, taking this conversation back again, I think it's more important how Alma is acting in these scenes. This is her introduction, her character set up uh, than anything else. Sure. It's how she's going to let him do this or act this certain way. Thoughts? Yeah, there's a couple different things that you brought up that are of note. The first is that with regards to who changes during the story and who might be considered the protagonist, I actually think neither of them really changes, which right. is first and foremost very interesting. But if anyone does, I would say that it's it's Daniel ultimately. I'm sorry. I keep ca- – I, you can't imagine how many times I wrote Daniel Plainview in my notes as I was writing this, <laughs> which for anyone who doesn't know that name offhand is Daniel Day-Lewis's character in There Will Be Blood. That Paul Thomas Anderson made a lot, a lot of similarities between these two characters. However, like I said, I think that Reynolds, Reynolds Woodcock is the character in Phantom Thread. He's a little bit more of the distinguished gentleman than 
Daniel Plainview was, but they share a lot in common. And I think that yeah, I don't think he'd kill anyone. Yeah, you know, I think Plainview straight up, you know, (laughs) you're in his way. Well, and he's going to drink your goddamn milkshake. (laughs) Plainview had that aspect of him where it was like that domineering business alpha male thing where he needed you to know that he was fucking you right now, right? And he wanted to just jam your face in it, right? Whereas I think that Reynolds Woodcock wouldn't want to call attention to it. He would want to do it, and he would want he would get the same inner satisfaction and probably have the same inner violence. But I think that it would be less outwardly manifested. I think that's the difference between Reynolds and Daniel. See, Reynolds Woodcock to me seems more high society spoiled brat. He's got his sister yeah, looking after absolutely. him, taking notes. He's got to have everything just a certain way. Um, you know, he wants to be attended to, but uh, and he he takes his profession very seriously. But um, yeah, I don't think he's necessarily. You never see him vengeful or competitive or anything other than just with himself. I think that Correct. he holds himself to a certain standard. But, but there is a domineering aspect that is very subtle, and that's what I that's what I loved about the character first and foremost. And I think that's what separates him from Daniel Plainview. Is Daniel Plainview again was out in the open, very aggressive, very loud gestures. So much of the leverage that Reynolds takes over other people emotionally. He never goes for the knockout punch. He's all about the little jabs, the little consistent jabs that add up over time and slow bleed you. And I think that we see that in the next scene when he takes her back home and does the fitting, which we'll talk about here real quick. I do just want to mention though, that in the dinner scene, there's a couple character traits that we see in actions that he takes that, again, very subtle. So we have the larger thing of him making take Alma take off her lipstick, right? And that's a very like, hey, I want you to do this thing for me, right? So he is making someone do his bidding to his wishes. And not only that, but when he talks about hiding the stuff in the clothes – Again, that's him having leverage over someone. I I know a secret that you don't know. You're wearing that thing, but you don't know that I actually put this little thing in there. Only I know that. Therefore, I have something over you. I have leverage over you. And I also thought it was very interesting to see that when he, even when he gets dessert for Alma with the custard, the little touch where he uh, he he puts his fingers in it and licks it off his fingers and says, wow, that's good, right? Like that's her custard. And he just dips his fingers in it and licks it off. So yep. all of these little things tell you that he's yeah. not somebody that considers the thoughts, feelings, et cetera, of other people. And if anything is going to go out of his way to do little things to make sure you know that he is in control. It's his world. You're just living in it. <laughs> Correct. If he wants your if he wants your pudding, he's going to take your pudding. Now, right. in the following scene, like I said, I think that this sets up the entire nature of Alma and Reynolds relationship throughout the film this scene where Reynolds bring her back home and he does a fitting for her right now first of all I you know I'm very ignorant to dress fittings and how detailed those dimensions are right like you hear you know you know that like women's dimensions are like you know three sizes or three measurements this guy had like three dozen different measurements of you know upper forearm to lower forearm and elbow and this and that and so that also clues you into how detailed his craft is, right? It's not just some fly-by-night approach that he takes. Like, he's doing every single detail possible to make sure that this is perfect. 
And even already, the fact that they have this brand new relationship, he starts making these little cutting remarks to her as he's doing her measurements, right? So it starts off very sweet, and he's like, you have a perfect body. Uh, I I can't wait to dress you. You're magnificent. You're wonderful. Starts doing these measurements. And then at a certain point, he starts measuring her breasts, and he's like, oh, look at that. You have no breasts. And then, like, keeps kind of going, and she's like, okay, like, that's not cool, but whatever, right? And this is all through the eyes. She's not saying anything. And then he looks up at her and says, don't worry. It's my job to give them to you. If I beat, want, if I choose beat, to. Yeah, beat if I want to. Right. right? So yeah. like all of a sudden it's like, okay, now to your point earlier, that's where I start getting a little bit like, oh, okay, that's if that's not creepy, that's definitely not attractive or definitely like some misogynistic bullshit that he's starting to go down to. And then even his sister, Cyril, chimes in with her own cutting comment later where he finishes up and he's like, great, you know, see you later. I'm going to go make this blah, blah, blah. And she looks over to Cyril and Cyril's like, oh, you're the perfect model. And she kind of smiles and she's like, he likes a little belly. Yeah. And like walks away. And it's like, dude, you guys are just like paper cutting this poor girl here and there who isn't sure like, is this a, am I a princess or am I being like set up to be poached? Like what the hell? So I thought that's so reflective of their relationship over the course of the film. I'll also add too that um, when Daniel Day-Lewis takes her up there for her fitting, um, I, I believe that Alma is under the impression that this is going to be a private affair and it's going to be an intimate yes. thing. And, you know, her body language is like, oh, this is sweet. He's going to do a private fitting for me. The, the great and powerful Reynolds Woodcock and me in his attic getting a private fitting at his country home. Very, very special. And then in walks Cyril. Um, all high society with her nose in the air and walks straight yeah. up and gets in Alma's business and smells her and says, mm. yeah, like a, almost like a, like a dog, right? Like the way that dogs sniff each other when right. they first meet. <laughs> yeah. Yes. He, she smells her within like a three foot radius and then gets all up in her business and smells her again. And then identifies her scent like, you know, lilac and saddle soap or something like that. Like I was yeah. wondering who made the it's house. It's like, Oh, is that lemon? Better. And she's like, yeah, we had salmon. Yes. Correct. Yeah, all up in her business. And, um, you know, just kind of, again, uh, this whole scene does a great job with establishing the power dynamic that will play out over the next, you know, uh, hour and a half or so uh, by this point. Um, Again, we've kind of seen who these characters are in their own right. Um, we're, We're starting to establish Alma, but we're starting to see how all these characters are going to get along together in this awkward you know, love triangle for lack of a better word, uh, definitely a power struggle. And, um, and it's really only these three characters for the entire film. Now, obviously they're in a lot of larger scenes with a lot of extras. There's a lot of hired help around the house that show up and come and go. Uh, but it's really just these three characters that you stay with for the entire film that you're concerning yourself with, uh, which I thought was very interesting as well especially for a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Absolutely. And that plays exactly into the next scene, which I have to be honest is one of my favorite scenes, if not my favorite scene. And I actually thought it was very funny the way that it plays out. Alma stayed over for the night. She's joining them for breakfast right now. This whole scene was set up by that first breakfast scene with the previous girlfriend. And we know that, you know, he's very sort of uh, fussy. He doesn't want to be bothered at, at breakfast in the morning. And when Alma is preparing her food, 
She is just incredibly loud with everything from the scraping of the butter to the pouring of the coffee and water and the everything. It's actually, it played very funny. And I do have a clip of that that I want to play for people here real quick. so much, Alma. I'm buttering my toast and not moving too much. Well, it's too much. It's a distraction. It's very distracting. Maybe you pay too much attention to it. It's hard to ignore. It's as if you just rode a horse across the room. much movement. It's entirely too much movement at breakfast. And Ryan, it's just that honestly the 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 line of there's entirely too much movement at breakfast. That line got me, man. I don't know why. I thought that line was hysterical because it's just like it, it does such a good job of telling you just how fussy of a guy this is. Like, ah, oh, it's entirely too much movement at breakfast. It's just so perfectly put. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot <laughs> the of good one-liners in here. Yeah, the sound Absolutely. design is great. Dude, it's around this time that I have in my notes. Um, we didn't. We have not yet talked about, and I'm sure you've got something to say about this, so I'll, I'll tee this up and pass it over. But, dude, Johnny Greenwood's score for this film yeah, of course. is fucking magical and it carries it this movie it is insane how constant it is uh and how dynamic it is and it's not just uh you know especially going from uh, i thought this was funny too going from uh john carpenter's assault on precinct 13 score and then going <laughs> into this the same thing yeah <laughs> like it's three or four note like wah 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 yeah exactly <laughs> like, dude it's Johnny like Greenwood's doing like, like crazy Amadeus style classical shit and it's non-stop through the entire film and the only time you do stop is when you want to you know when it's very intentional that you're supposed to be paying attention to something but uh yeah the the cues for you know how you're supposed to feel about something the emotion behind uh the score for those who don't know Johnny Greenwood is the lead guitarist and keyboardist for Radiohead and has scored most all of PTA's films if I'm not mistaken Jason is that correct Actually, no, he uh, he really hasn't. He scored There Will Be Blood. Well, he scored everything from There Will Be Blood. I okay. Think, forward. So he Got just it. didn't do like the first half of his career. Okay. But yeah. I, I do think, yeah, but I do know that he's done, he did Licorice Pizza. He did this one. He did There Will Be Blood. I'm sure he did the two in between that as well. In so, all fairness, he was probably like full time with Radiohead back then. So maybe he didn't have a lot of time to score shit. I don't know if he was into the movie score stuff way back then, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but I will absolutely 100% agree with you, Ryan. Like I thought that this, I will actually go out and say that this score is so wonderful and so perfect for this film film. I'm not a huge score guy. Like I don't know music the way that I know film. So I can't really speak to it with the same level of, you know, clarity and insight and such, but there's just something about the marriage of sound and melody and instrumentation. It's kind of creepy at sometimes. It's beautiful at sometimes. It's hauntings at times. 
This score was so perfect for this film. I would have to imagine it's probably like a top 10 score of all time in cinematic history because of the way that it supports and drives forward the film. I'm not going to say that like there are probably better songs and better melodies and more memorable melodies, right? Like I'm not saying that there's any piece of music in this that's as memorable as the the Jaws score or the Star Wars score, right? Those would probably be the most memorable that stand out, but it's more from the standpoint of like uh, the way a top 40 song is, right? I don't, I, I, it's almost like a separate thing. This score is inextricably linked to the visuals. They, they, they synthesize into sort of like a singular product, the way that all of the best scores do. And I thought it was fascinating. It's interesting, like I said, to have an old school period piece romance and then have these like haunting thriller horror synth stabs and random instrumentation that shouldn't work, but it absolutely does. And it's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it was nominated for best score if I'm not mistaken. Um, it was yes. Yeah. And lost to the shape of water, which (laughs) I still haven't seen, but I can't imagine it's very good. Dude. Everyone I know that saw that kind of hated it. What did you think? I've not seen it. Don't need oh. to see a chick fuck a oh, fish. Okay, wow. Yeah, <laughs> we already watched <laughs> already saw uh, the, the lighthouse. lighthouse. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, go back and listen to that episode, ladies and germs. Hey, <laughs> that's Plug a winner. In the show, yo. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Loss of the Shape of Water, which I, I mean, I, I'm gonna have to listen to that one because good on them. Uh, nominees included Star Wars Episode Eight, which I don't know why <laughs> I just. Thought that happened way before 2017, but no, it did not, apparently. Uh, Dunkirk, uh, Phantom Thread, and Three Bo- Billboards. Cool. Love Three Billboards. I have that one on our list. Now, from there, he has this sort of fashion show at his own house, and it kind of just, more than the scene itself, it sets up the fact that afterwards, he experiences a bout of depression. And we learn from Alma, who's talking to possibly Cyril, but Cyril would probably be familiar with it. So maybe it's someone else that he kind of has these episodes every so often, often after a show. And it'll last about three days and then he'll pick himself back up and he'll be fine. But what it sets up is the fact that when he's in this state, he's very weak and he's very vulnerable and he kind of just lays there in bed. And when he's in this state, he's much more appreciative of Alma and he's much more loving. And again, he's emotionally vulnerable. He doesn't have those walls up that he usually has. And Alma comes to very much appreciate these moments. And again, it's going to set up the reason for the final scene, which is a batshit crazy scene that we're going to talk about here. Not too long, but We quickly see that after those few days when he gets back to normal, he immediately goes right back into being a dick and their relationship changes back to where he's constantly sniping at her, right? So the scene after he picks himself up, dusts himself off, gets back to work as he's in his office, you know, whatever that would be, and she comes to bring him tea and she won't – he won't let her in and she kind of comes in of her own accord and then he's like, what are you doing? She's like, I have tea. And he's like, oh, it's a little late for tea, isn't it? And, like, kind of just stares her down. Like, why are you interrupting me? And she's like, I'm sorry. I'll leave. And he's like, isn't it? Isn't it late for tea? Don't you think it's late for tea? Why are you here with tea? And she's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's like, why would you interrupt me now for tea? Like, so just won't let, like, isn't going to let it go. 
wants to make sure that she knows that she interrupted him and how dare she, right? Even yeah. if it's to bring him something that he may like. He she was care. trying to do You're a nice thing. Time. Right. And yeah. yeah. And she does Don't that drink often. the fucking teas. Just say, leave it over there and I'll get to it. Thank you so much for being thoughtful. Like, you don't have Correct. to drink it. Just enjoy, you know, thought that counts kind of thing. He has yep. a great line. I believe it's the scene that you're talking about because sometimes it's hard to differentiate between which tantrum he's throwing and where we are in the yeah. movie because he throws a few. Uh, but is this the line where he says, um, the, the tea leaves, but the interruption stays with me, Correct. <laughs> which I just yes. thought was really <laughs> great. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And which, uh, by the way, for those of you who don't know, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson does write all of his films. So, uh, writer, director and photographer on a studio film with Daniel Day Lewis. You don't often see that. So props to Mr. Anderson on this one. Dude's a fucking I, badass. Yeah. You could say so you awesome, don't like dude. some of his films, like, you know, the, whatever, but uh, if they didn't talk to you, but he's a fucking stud. He's one of the Absolutely. greatest, if not the greatest filmmaker of this generation. 100%. Yeah. He's in my, he's in my all time top 10, if not top five, I adore his work. And I will, I'm really glad that I liked this one as much as I did, because like I said, I didn't like the master and inherent vice. And it's like, eh. So, so it was really cool to see this come real through. quick. Let's take a pause because we are scooting along. And the reason we are scooting along uh, through this movie is because I need to ask you, Jason, like nothing is happening and yet everything is happening so far. I've got in my notes <laughs> right here so far in this film, I've seen a dress fitting, nervous, moping, throwing fits and horny meals. And yet I am so engaged in this movie. Like I'm loving it. My eyeballs are glued to the screen and yet like nothing is happening other than just like these awful people throwing fits on each other and making me, you're making too much noise at breakfast and I don't want tea. (laughs) And I'm like, but it's goddamn Daniel Day Lewis doing this in the most magnificent way to a Johnny Greenwood, uh, awesome score and this auteur is directing it. And I'm like, why do I love this movie so much? Like, so yeah. You know, here you are saying you are just drinking this all in and yet nothing is happening really plot wise. It's such a character driven movie. Uh, So, Jason, what did you think about this movie? (laughs) Why do you like that? At this point in the film, like nothing's gone on. Why do you like this movie so much? Why do you what's your take on this high level? Well, I think that it speaks a lot to what we respond to in film. So often we look at especially when it comes to genre films, we look at the plot. And that becomes everything, right? And it's very easy to think that a good a good plot makes a good film, right? And and it's also just more fun to talk about. So you take a film like Escape from New York, and it's like, okay, yeah, we're gonna take this guy, and you know, he's a criminal, and then he's gonna work for the government, and then he's gonna get dropped in this giant jail, and then he's gonna end up with finding this sort of underground society, and then he's going to get in a wrestling match with this, you know, giant crazed guy with a barbed wire bat, and then it turns out that Isaac Hayes is the leader of this underground, and, like, there's all this stuff that keeps happening, right? And it's interesting to talk about, but, like, I don't love Escape from New York, right? Like, it's sure. it's a cool story. If I was pitching it, it would be a lot of fun to talk about, but as a movie, I can't say that I really loved it the way that I loved this, which, again can be described as like people kind of talk and it's about relationships. So I think that oftentimes we can respond to story, but film is an emotional experience. Okay. And oftentimes emotions are not logical. They're not, you know, beginning to end through points. It's just examinations of how we feel about people, about our lives. And I think that it's the case that we respond to strong emotional reactions. 
doesn't necessarily matter where and when, and especially if they have a context that we can wrap our head around, we're going to appreciate that much more. So all of us have been in relationships with people. All of us have known domineering sorts, right? But we haven't, we're not really used to dealing with those people. So to see that sort of person examined and reflected in a film, I think there's an element of, what do you want to call it? They're the same thing that, you know, you look at a car crash for, right? Okay. So I think it's just, it's, it's something that's sort of spectacular and it's different and it's a strong reaction and it's not how you would respond, but, and then of course there's just the subtle elements of filmmaking. I think that there is the acting that's on display. There's this beautiful cinematography. We've got this wonderful score. And so I think that all of the different technical elements are working to keep us engaged because it never felt boring. And even if I didn't like the main character, I was very interested in him, right? He was a right. fascinating character. And I think that's the difference is like fascinating and likable. Not everybody who's an interesting protagonist necessarily has to be likable. And I know that's kind of a larger discussion in you know cinema as well. There are people that have a big problem with the fact that every protagonist needs to be likable so that we go on his journey. But I also understand that from a filmmaker's perspective, if you lose your audience and they're not connected to the protagonist, then they're going to check out of the film. So I know that was kind of like a long, rambling, sprawling non-answer to a degree, but I think that <laughs> also that also in and of itself answers the question, which is it's not any one thing. There's not one it's answer, right. It's just the fact that it's a singular vision. Everybody knows what they're trying to do. The actors know the emotions they want to put out there. It's in concert with the writer's words. The director is finding the best way to bring that out. We've got a visual aesthetic from the cinematographer, in this case the director, that reflects the world accurately, right? Because these are these are high-class characters with somewhat seedy, dirty character traits. Yeah. And the visual aesthetic reflects that. So – I think it's just a perfect synthesis of all of these different aspects of filmmaking with the story being told and the characters being portrayed by the actors the way that they are. Yeah, I mean, I can't even describe how he does it uh, because he's a bit of a magician. But one thing that I took away from this and and all of his films is not to, you know, keep harping on PTA all the time, but uh, he is he's a very inclusive I don't know if I'm describing this right, but it's it, his level of inclusion of the audience into every scenario um, is uh, was really interesting. Like I felt like I was in all these scenes sitting at the table with these people. When we yeah. went to the countryside town, it felt cold and wet as we were walking along the seaside. Um, so that I mean, just his attention to detail uh, the way he builds mood with the music and cinematography and all the things, the acting are all working in concert with each other to uh, make it feel less like theater where I'm watching someone else go through something, which yeah, if that were the case, if I was watching these two high society people go at each other from the outside looking in, I think that it would have been more grating of a film um, and, and like worn on my nerves a little bit. It would have been harder to watch. Uh, if it was more like, um, you know, uh, through a keyhole style uh, voyeuristic fighting. Uh, and we I've seen films like that where 
um, you know, like Revolutionary Road or, you know, some of these roads uh, by Sam Mendes, I believe, um, where, you know, you're sure. watching these people like go at go at it, you know, or have these tremendous uh, breakdowns of their relationship. But I never felt like I was a part of it. But this film I and all his films, you know, like There Will Be Blood, we talked about Boogie Nights. Um, you know, uh, the, the world of 1970s and 1980s pornography is not a world that I ever thought that I would be dropped in the middle of. And yet, you know, sure. watching that film, I felt like I was in that truck about ready to pay Dirk Diggler 15 bucks to jerk, you know, watch him jerk <laughs> off. <laughs> I was right yeah. there in the moment, you know, high intensity. Yep. There's just something about his films where he makes realistic characters that draw us into them, even though... I would say that's not necessarily the case with all of his characters, but I think that later on, once he got away from doing the ensemble pieces and he was just focusing like from punch drunk love forward, when his films stopped becoming ensemble pieces and became just two or three characters for the entire film, we really get to know those characters and they all feel very real and very drawn out, but also with their own idiosyncrasies that make them unique and unlike other characters that we've seen before. And I think that's a large part of his success. Yeah. And this movie is just, I avoided it, you know, because like I said, the subject matter kind of kept me away. But holy shit, is he firing on all cylinders in this film? And I just now I got to go watch Licorice Pizza. I know you said, you know, uh, there were some uh, issues with it or what have you. But uh, yeah, uh, you know, it just made me want to go back and watch some of these other films or rewatch some of his masterpieces. I haven't seen There Would Be Blood in way too long. Same. Absolutely. I also like there's a little moment right after that where she's cooking with the chef and she basically tells Alma, like, oh, make sure not to use too much butter. He detests too much butter. And the eye roll that Alma gives, like, you can just hear that. She's, like, getting so fed up with how fussy this dude is and all these little <laughs> things that everyone constantly has to do to please him and how exacting he is. Like, I love the moment, too, earlier where after he storms out from there being entirely too much movement at breakfast, Cyril looks at her and says – if breakfast doesn't go just right, he finds it very difficult to recover the rest of the day. And so it's like, again, the like this guy just has no chill to use the common parlance, right? No chill. Like every little it's it's almost like he's constantly looking for a reason to complain, right? Like he's one of those people that's so unhappy, like the old miserable wealthy dowris or something like that, that, you know, <laughs> is just constantly like waiting for someone to say the wrong thing so she can call them out and just like gets off on like constantly putting other people down. He's got very, very strong wealthy dowris energy. Well, uh, yeah, and, and the fact that he's a method actor and stays in character, um, he must have been a fucking treat to do deal with on set uh, <laughs> through this whole film. I think they, uh, the, the filming period over this was uh, around 65 days, if I'm not mistaken, if I looked that up correctly, um, which was pretty long for a movie like this, uh, sure. just kind of a character-driven film. Uh, so, you know call it two months that you have to deal with a, a fussy spoiled brat, Daniel T. Lewis character. <laughs> I must have been, I'm sure his wife was like, I'll be at the fucking castle in Ireland. You just go have fun. With <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we're not dealing with this shit. Absolutely. And then after this moment, we get Cyril and she's coming to Reynolds, informing him that there's a woman, Barbara, who has invited him to her wedding. Now he does not like this. He protests. He doesn't want to do it. However, Cyril insists because she's a very wealthy client that they make a lot of their money off of. And so he pretty much has to do it. And he puts up a little bit of a fight, but he also doesn't tell Cyril no pretty much ever. So 
She kind of makes him do it. He says, fine, let's go. She shows up. She's obviously, you know, much less attractive than a lot of the other models that have come in. We find out that she's basically engaging in a marriage of wealth and convenience to a handsome president of some Latin American country, I believe, or something like that. Venezuela, let's say. And this sets up a moment that comes immediately after where it's during the wedding and Reynolds has made the dress for Miss Barbara and it's at their wedding and she is just getting fucking plastered, like literally ends up super hammered, is using this beautiful, wonderful who knows how ungodly expensive dress to like wipe wine off her face and sweat off her face and stuff. And she ends up passing out very quickly and a team of, you know, six people have to come and literally lift her up and escort her out of the wedding reception. And Dan, again, I keep calling him Daniel Jesus Reynolds and (laughs) Alma are sitting there at the table and He's kind of distraught because of what's going on. And she's actually upset, too, because she loves Daniel and she knows that he God, there it is again. Daniel, she loves Reynolds and she knows that he does wonderful work. And so she's like, she was wearing your dress. And he's like, yeah, I know it happens. And she's like, no, but that was a beautiful dress. And like she sullied your good name and your good work. And he's like, yeah, it happens. And she's like, no, it doesn't. We're going to go get that dress back. And he's like, you know what? Yeah, let's go get that dress back. And they storm I lo- back. I actually really to love this scene. the hotel room and get it back from them. Good thing because I actually have a clip of it. Let's go ahead and listen here. Mr. Woodcock, what is the it? dress back? Miss Rose is sleeping. Well, that's got nothing to do with the dress. Can you go and get it for me, please? She's sleeping. In the dress? Well, yes. Go and take the dress off her and bring it to me right away. I don't think so. Take the fucking dress off, Barbara, and bring it to me or I'll do it myself. I beg your pardon. Alma. So, yeah, so we see that whole thing take place. They're not taking no for an answer. They end up literally tearing it off of Barbara's unconscious body. And it's after that that Alma we get this does. very sort of... Yeah, Reynolds yeah. stays outside with swag and, like, deploys the fucking, you know, the hounds. <laughs> you know, release the hounds. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, Alma goes in and she's like, fuck you, you know, and uh, you know, in her drunken state, she's all passed out and unconscious. The son even comes in and, you know, he's like... Uh, Mr. Mr. Woodcock, and he's like, "Hey, what's up? <laughs> Don't mind me. Just Don't taking my, my shit back. Yep, just taking your mom's and, dress. Uh, yeah, we'll be we'll excuses we'll himself from the situation, realizing he's uh, out outmatched and outgunned. Uh, but it's also the uh, the turning uh, of the tides where we see for the first time in a long time, perhaps since the country house." Reynolds and Alma really working as a team and coming together in a romantic way. We see Reynolds kind of lowering his guard a little bit. And this was a moment in the in the film where I thought maybe we would see more of a character arc here and a coming together of these two forces. But then he kind of retreats back to that whiny child state um, in the high society state. I thought he was yeah. gonna, they were going to have a little Bonnie and Clyde moment, but uh, it was really just a scene. And then they go right back to it. But it's just well, enough, I think, to keep Alma interested and to see the potential. Otherwise, uh, you know, she'd bail because um, their relationship is challenged several times around this part of the film. But she stays with him. And I think you need these little 
moments, these little breadcrumbs to lead her along to kind of show her or give her character hope. What was your thought on sure. that? So really interesting about this scene, because I do understand what you're saying. However, I think if you take a step back and analyze it, A, it, it fits in perfectly with the characters and what's going on here. And B, it may not necessarily be as sweet of a moment as we might think. So let, let me see if I can sort of like lead you into this. We'll, we'll sort of just, just play along here with me on this moment. So they have this moment where they're pat, you know, like, he, oh, thank you so much for doing that. And, you know, he looks into her eyes and he kisses her passionately and we get sort of some swelling romantic music. And, you know, they kind of basically skip off arm in arm. Right now, what just happened Ryan, tell us what just happened real quick again. Why, why is he so happy? Uh, I mean, I, there was a on the surface because so uh, on the surface. So I'm sorry. So high level, he she, goes and gets his dress back from this drunk bitch who, uh, but no, was but, mis- but, but does, does he, or does she, who drives it? Well, she drove it. She drove it. Exactly. And she drove right. getting his dress back because his dress was too sacred to be sullied in the manner that it was. Correct. So this is what I think is funny is his affection that he shows to her has nothing to do with her as a person. He is showering her with affection and love because she validated him by validating his work and saying that, yes, your work is as sacred as you believe it to be, at which point he said, wow, really? Thank you so much. I love you. It had nothing to do with her being a gracious person, anything she directly did. It is a response to the validation that he gets when other people lend credence to the sacred nature of his work. Kiss the rings. Exactly. Yeah. And that's so, what I, I mean, because the so scene even ends um, as they're walking down the street, you know, and she's kind of bubbly and giggling at their adventure they just had together um, with something along the lines of, uh, you know, she'll never be she'll never again be dressed by the House of Woodcock or something along those lines. And then they exactly. walk in the, the door. That's and, what and it's about. Ends. Yeah. We, like, I am as great as everyone says. And yes, that woman is beneath me. Thank you for helping me remember how great I am. That's the sure. whole point of that scene. So that's what I think is so funny is that. On the surface, it looks like a really sweet scene, but you dig a little bit deeper and it just goes to show how impersonal he is and how little he cares about other people. She's just stoking the fires of his ego, more or less, yep. stroking his ego exactly. throughout the scene. And he and he loves it. He's like, ooh, this feels nice. That's what he loves. <laughs> Not her, the adulation that she's sure. giving him. Right. And with that, All we're right. going to take a quick commercial break for our sponsor. We'll be right back. Bye-bye, Miss Allen. Thank you so much, Murray. You are, without a doubt, the most delicious tailor in town. You be sure to come see us again here real soon, okay? It'll be my pleasure. (sighs) Another satisfied customer. Oh, hello everyone out there in Radio Land. I didn't hear you come in. My name's Murray. And this here is Murray and Beatrice's fine dresses and alterations. The best dressmakers in all of Brooklyn. And let me tell you, folks, the deal's right now. Well, Sue Ellen sure did seem awful friendly with you today. 
What are you talking about, Beatrice? That's just how Mrs. Allen is. She's a friendly person. Huh, friendly? Is that some code word for women that let their bazungas hang out all over the place? Hanging out? Uh, they were nicely stationed in a beautiful brazier. Like a classy metropolitan lady. Psh, metropolitan? What is she, a variety flavor of ice cream now? Beatrice, it's pronounced Neapolitan. No, it's not. It's pronounced Napoleon, you ninny. He can never decide on chocolate, vanilla, or strawberry, so they put all three together for him. It's a well-known fact. Beatrice, I swear you're gonna flare up the ulcer, and then we're gonna have... Aren't you filming a commercial? Oh, right. Like I said, this is Murray and Beatrice's fine dresses and alterations, and we've got a deal for you. Right now, oh! Why are you yelling so much? What do you mean, yelling? You're yelling at the people. You're supposed to be inviting them into the store. I'm not yelling, I'm emphasizing. It's what good copy readers do. Copying? Why are you copying anybody? This is our store. <sighs> Beatrice? Yeah? I love you, sweetheart. Aw, oh, I love you too, my big fuzzy bear. My big fuzzy wuzzy bear. Mary and Beatrice's fine dresses and alterations. Okay, that was a little word from our sponsor. We really appreciate you shelling out all the money that you do for these episodes. Wonderful sponsor. Thanks so much. Now the following scene. <laughs> and believe me, we get huge payouts from these guys. Yeah. Huge yeah, payouts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now in the next scene, Alma wants to surprise Reynolds. And in a very honest but misguided attempt, she sends away all of the workers, including Cyril. And they actually – so when she first pitches the idea to Cyril, Cyril is like, nope, he's going to hate that. But we don't really know because obviously Cyril has a resentment towards Alma. And we haven't really talked about this, but there is a constant back and forth between Alma and Cyril for who is essentially Reynolds's caretaker. And we, uh, we'll we see that here in a, in, a, in a scene where he gets sick. We'll talk about that more. That's where that really comes out, right? But already before that, we're seeing these little moments where each of them is constantly trying to outdo the other one with, oh, let me get that for you. Oh, here, let me take care of that for you. Oh, hey, I'm leaving. You should leave too. No, I don't want to leave. I'm going to stick around. But I'm leaving, so you have to leave. And there's a constant tug of war for who is essentially going to be taking care of Reynolds after all this time. And that whole thing is reinforced, that whole idea, by the fact that Cyril protests what she says is a bad idea that Reynolds is going to hate by sending everyone away and cooking a surprise meal for just the two of them and having the house entirely to themselves. And when Reynolds walks in from his walk and sees that everyone's gone, he kind of tries to play it off like, oh, well, yeah, no, that's uh, that's great. But it quickly becomes apparent that he does not think this is great and he's very dismayed and she's trying to get him to have a one-on-one -on -one dinner with him uh, – with her rather and he just wants to like take a bath and pretend that this didn't happen. And so he excuses himself, comes back out. She's like, hey, have dinner with me. He protests a little bit but ultimately does and then ends up ostensibly getting really upset about the asparagus though we kind of know it's not really about the asparagus. It's about kind of everything that's going on. By the way, Ryan, I did think there was a very interesting moment. I don't know if you noticed this, that when Day-Lewis was – grabbed the salt to salt his asparagus, that he put some in his hand and threw it over his shoulder? No, I didn't, so I, I didn't catch that. Yeah, and so I guess 
when you couple that with the stuff that he talks about, about sewing the little objects into the clothes and, you know, it's very important. It can like, you know, and then having relationships be cursed or not and all this sort of stuff. He's a very superstitious person and they don't really delve into that. There's just these tiny little actions that Day-Lewis takes that keys you into that. I thought, that, I yeah. thought those, those were pretty interesting moments. So when you said that earlier in the show about him stitching things into the garments and having that bit of control over people, to me, it was very much more about the superstitious nature of his character and the things okay. he puts his faith in or uh, puts weight behind um, are things that aren't real necessarily or you know beyond his purview so he could have you know it it sets up a a way to have control over everything tangible in front of you and anything that's not well those are the things that you know i'll let have control over me um in in the same vein that when he gets the fever here shortly a few scenes later um he hallucinates and sees the ghost of his dead mother and he mentions earlier in the film um it'd be nice if ghosts were real, you know, that uh, there'd be something after death or, or, you know, it's comforting that they would be looking over me or something like that. So, um, you know, he talks about his dead mother uh, at dinner, which I thought was very weird as well. His first dinner with Alma, he starts talking about his dead mother, which I thought was yeah. kind of creepy, totally. um, but uh, not, not really first date material, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> but yeah, um, I didn't notice the salt, but I did catch that he was a very superstitious person. And I thought that lent, uh, a lot of credence to his character arc, you know, or, or his desi- character design, the things he was going for. These little minor Absolutely. things. Makes you wonder if that was a PTA decision or a Day-Lewis decision, you know? Yeah, I do. I do kind of wonder. It's not really in the script, so I would imagine it was probably more of an acting decision. But, I mean, sometimes they come to those conclusions or it's written into the script. And someone like PTA would very much have little subtle nuances he wouldn't want to call attention sure. to. He very but something you that in other... Something you were touching on uh, very quickly is um, the, the Cyril Alma dynamic and how Cyril yeah. um, Reynolds's sister uh, yes. was constantly trying to rally for or, you know, or, or keep her thumb on Alma more or less. Like, yeah, know your know your role, stay in line, this and that. Um, and this was very much uh, on full display in the scene right before this, wherein. Reynolds was hired by a French princess or someone of French royalty uh, to design her wedding dress. And she comes in for a fitting mm-hmm. uh, to a, you know, in a full parade of assistants and people and and was greeted by all the house helpers of the House of Woodcock and, and the people that would be actually doing the stitching. And Alma was found in the procession line greeting this French uh, royalty um who was very beautiful and she comments as such in this dinner, which stokes the confrontation uh, even before the asparagus. Uh, But um, yeah, she was found in this procession greeting this French royalty, like way in the back or even in the middle. Like she was never highlighted as, Oh, this is my girlfriend or this is my you know lover or, or whatever. My significant other of any sort. She was never given any recognition and she was left to her own devices to uh, introduce herself amongst the help Um, To this French royalty, like, you know, hi, I am Alma and, you know, I live here. And the French princess kind of shrugged it off like, oh, that's cool, whatever. But all that to say that Alma is struggling at this point, finding her place in this world. Um, She is now dating Reynolds and she's living in the house with him. And and Cyril is, you know, right behind them at every step, joining them for every dinner, sliding tables over at romantic engagements, 
uh, to take notes and things. Um, always brings Reynolds back to work when Reynolds seemingly is starting to soften a bit. So Alma wants his time alone to see if she can kind of crack the egg. And um, instantly she brings up this French princess scenario. And then Reynolds is like, oh, here we go. And you made the fucking asparagus wrong, you know, and then he goes into this whole diatribe. But uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's where they really get into this huge fight as well, where ostensibly it's because she used butter to cook the asparagus instead of the oil and salt that he prefers. Right. But obviously that's not just what's going on. And it turns into a huge, huge argument where Reynolds literally tells her to, to, to go fuck off if she doesn't like it. Basically, she's like, look, you know, this obviously isn't working. We don't seem happy. Why don't you just send me off? Right. Like, I'm not going to be able to leave you. So just do us all a favor and send me off. And he's like, you know what? I'm not going to give you that satisfaction. If you want to leave, fuck off yourself. It's going to be your own volition. Right. Kind of like that dynamic where you have two people in a relationship where, Neither of them want to be with each other, but each of them is like, oh, no, I'm not going to be the one to ruin this relationship. If you want to, you go ahead, but I'm not leaving. And they're like, well, I'm not leaving either. And then they just fight for the rest of their lives. Right. Like and it very much kind of feels a little bit like that. However, it also sets up the next scene, which is going but to it was set never up uncomfortable. the last scene. Yeah, it was. It, it, yeah, it, maybe maybe a couple. You know, what's funny. The uncomfortable moments was really were the moments where Reynolds said things to her. It wasn't when they were fighting. Cause yeah. Cause like I get very uncomfortable watching couples fight and like, especially in real life, but yeah, even in kind of films and stuff like that. So you're right. I never felt that like, but it's not that like they never get into that full throated yelling. It's, it's very much British arguing, arguing, right? <laughs> like yeah. it's not full throated yeah. American arguments. <laughs> Fuck you get out of my house. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. This and that. No, it's like little cutting comments. Like, Oh, Oh yes. That seems like something you would do. All right. Oh, then. Yes, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what is it like? Uh, that the family guy moment, like the, the wasps, right? Like, well, I just try to bring a little civility to the dinner table. Kids, did you know that your mother's a whore? <laughs> oh man, yeah. I mean, because there's a line on the staircase right before this dinner that stood out to me, uh, where he says, "What is this?" and she says, "I love you, Reynolds." And he says, "Yes, but what is this?" <laughs> so he totally like, you know, she's saying, "I love you," and he's like, "Yeah, I get that, but what is it?" You know, totally negating, arguably the most powerful three words in the English language, and you know, skipping right over that. <laughs> And wanting to know, like, logically, how does this fit into my life? What are you trying to do here? And, um, yeah, I, I just thought, you know, this scene and every scene thereafter um, should have made me feel really grimy. But I was kind of into it. I I thought it was really interesting. <laughs> and it gets kind of playful. Uh, and we'll talk about that in the, uh, the next yeah. scene. And how the movie yeah. resolves, which I'm kind of confused on. I'm interested in your take on that. Awesome. I'm Yeah, I'm really looking forward to discussing that as well it's definitely a discussion worthy moment the way that it's written so we'll get there in just a sec now before that though we've got again this sets up the ending where alma's out and they're gathering mushrooms and there are certain mushrooms that are fine to eat and there's others that are poisonous she doesn't really know which one is which yet but they've got books at home so she gathers a bunch of mushrooms brings them home there's this yellow one and it turns out that, yes, the yellow mushroom is actually one of the poison ones. So now what she does is she ends up grinding this mushroom up and putting it in tea, the tea that the, she is going to serve Reynolds. So she is knowingly now putting just a little bit of poison in his tea. 
Now, now when this happens, Ryan, I thought one of two things, either like she's outright going to poison him. So he gets sick or maybe she's going to like slow poison him. Like it's just going to put a tiny bit of poison to sort of like long-term make him (laughs) sick. Right. Yeah. Over time to sort of kill him in a way that he doesn't know much like in uh, Amadeus actually, uh, kind of the the way that he was going to, uh, he was, uh, kind of the way that Salieri was going to approach Mozart's, but now, Reynolds has been working on the wedding dress for the French royalty that you just mentioned a little bit ago, and they've finished the dress, and it's time for him to inspect, and he is not doing well. He is getting very sweaty, having a hard time staying up. He ends up keeling over, knocking over the dre- wedding dress, getting some of his shoe polish on the front of it, staining it black, as well as tearing a big hole in the middle of the lace, and this thing has to be shipped out tomorrow at 9 a.m., so guess what, girls? You're working overtime to fix this thing, and Mr. Reynolds is going to be sick in his bed, being tended to by his wife and sister, though mostly just his wife, because it's kind of where Alma starts to assert herself in more ways than one. I mean, first by taking the proactive act of poisoning him with this mushroom, and then basically this is where she starts to sell Cyril to fuck off, right? Like – So Cyril wants to get a doctor. She's like, no, I don't think we should do that because Cyril's a little bit suspicious about what's going on. Why Reynolds is all of a sudden sick. And she was out with them picking the mushrooms earlier and made mention of the fact that some of them are poisonous. So she's starting to suspect a little bit. She wants to get a doctor and Alma very much doesn't for obvious reasons. Cyril calls one anyway, insists that he goes sees Reynolds. When he walks into Reynolds' room, Reynolds tells him to fuck off the same way he did his wife. And he's not going to have him inspect him, which means that Alma is not going to be discovered. You know, there's not going to be realized that she poisoned him. This is where also where we get the hallucination scene that you spoke to earlier where he sees his mom. And so kind of the same way with the superstitions, there's an underlying aspect of him having sort of some sort of maternal issue, mommy issues, whatever. He makes reference to it. You know, he tells her when he has the lock of hair that he stitched into his suit that she should do the same being Alma and keep your mother close to your heart and things of that nature. So and then he sees her again when he hallucinates. She's just standing next to the door. She doesn't actually do anything. She's just standing there in white. And now that's not what I actually want to talk about, Ryan. There's there's one thing is there's a technical thing that I want to mention. And it kind of reminds me of other moments that we've talked about. There's. One of, like, the best, most unassuming one-takes. I know you like to call them oneers. I call them single-takes. And it's right after – it's in between them being sick, and it's when Cyril and Alma come into the dressmakers, and they're watching them make the dress, and they're talking to them. So we basically – it starts out. It's this two-shot of Alma and Cyril entering the room, right? And then all of the dressmakers are around this table and there's a bunch of fabric and dressmakers and the camera dollies around the entire table, keeping the arms of the dressmakers as well as the dress itself and the fabric in the lower third of the frame. And it basically goes all the way around to the other side. It's sick. uh, It's a sick shot. I I noticed it too. Yeah, it's amazing. It stops. Cyril exits. It turns into a wide of Alma. And then we track right with her. It it basically dollies into an extreme close-up of her hands, Alma's, as she's pinning the ribbons, and then tilts up to a close-up of her face. And all of this is executed in one shot, about maybe 45 to 60 seconds. And it was a beautiful, beautiful shot. And it and it, and it kind of – it was an unassuming shot. Like at first I didn't realize it was a single take until about halfway through. And then I was like, wait, is that – was this one shot? 
And then I went back and rewound it and watched it again. And I was like, oh man, that was just so perfectly executed. And that goes right into another single take, which is where Reynolds has recovered and he goes uh, to wake Alma from the couch. And we see the sort of finished wedding dress there in the left side of the frame. It's a wide shot. And he's talking to her about, you know, hey, I realize that I've been wrong. I love you so much. He ends up proposing to her. And that whole scene is like a super consistent slow push in from a very wide shot to ultimately like a pretty close two shot, probably like a medium, medium wide. And it's but it's just it's that consistent nonstop push in with just that perfect speed where it maintains a very deliberate pace. And Paul right. Thomas Anderson has been doing that since film one. I mean, at least film two, because in Boogie Nights, he actually does that a lot. There's a lot of dolly push-ins from sort of uh, medium-wide two shots to close-ups, right? Uh, the shot of, like, Burt Reynolds watching the film the first time it comes through comes to mind. And even earlier in the scene, you know, there's so much dolly movement. We haven't really talked about that. The camera movement in this film is wonderful. Like Paul Thomas Anderson is never keeping his camera just locked down, but it's such slow, deliberate movements that it matches the pacing and the tone and the visual aesthetic of the world that he's created. And I think that's why when you talk earlier about like what makes this film work, it's not any one thing. And, and I will actually say, it's actually one of my adjectives, but, you know, this is a film that's greater than the sum of its parts. We've talked about that before. Like, if you actually, if you were to take any, before I had seen this movie, if you took any three to five minutes, isolated in a vacuum with no context, and you showed me just those three to five minutes, I would be like, great, not a film I'm ever going to watch. No interest. <laughs> like, nothing about these moments in and of themselves are interesting or fascinating or whatever. But when taken as a whole, you just can't help but become thoroughly engaged in what's going on. I can't explain why I love this movie. I mean, other than what I've already <laughs> said. Yeah, I don't know, dude. Uh, th nothing about this film is a Ryan film. You know, yeah. there's nothing that really stands out. Not a lot happens. Um, but yeah, dude, I don't know. It's yeah. it's fantastic. Credit where due. Um, his Steadicam op that did all those camera movements that you're talking about is Colin Anderson, who he's worked with ever since There Will Be Blood. Uh, nice. You know he's a badass. Like I said, because he shot this film himself, um, and, and he's been quoted as saying this. I'm not just pulling this out of my ass, but he gives uh, all all credit uh, to Michael Bauman, his gaffer and camera op, and uh, this dude Colin Anderson, who's been his mm -hmm. Steadicam operator. They both worked with him for for many many years, uh, and there was some uh, overlap with Robert Elswit who was his DP going all the way back to like Boogie Nights and Punch Truck Love. Robert Ellswit was, was the DP for There Will Be Blood, which Colin Anderson was on. So um, he's had some overlap with his camera work. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, now, you know, he's behind the lens on this one. And uh, but Colin Anderson's still there running the Steadicam. Uh, nice. And earlier in the film, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, in contrast to what you're saying, uh, as we're following him down hallways and stuff, there was tons of handheld. And a lot mm -hmm. of the camera movement was very jittery and shaky. And then as we get into these later shots into the film, it was very smooth. And like you said, these big long oneers and very orchestrated and all of that. Um, but everything was kind of a little more hectic in the beginning of the film. Even sure. the car scenes where the car mount, uh, the oh, camera yeah, car definitely. mount was on the hood of the mm -hmm. car. And you just yeah. see a flat view into the windshield. But the the there was no, the, obviously 
he could have shot that very smooth if he wanted to, but it looks like he literally just slapped a camera on the hood of the car because it's very shaky. In yeah, general, it's very kind of showing, Yeah, jumps around yeah, with the car. Right, and I think that's very intentional on his part to show, you know, they, the uh, hectic nature of uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's, you know, Ren- Reynold Woodcock's, um, you know, life at that time and how things yeah. are kind of easing into place or falling into place maybe later, even though on the surface, he's still a jaded prick. Yeah. You know, as we start to near the end of the film, uh, a lot of these pieces start to fall in line a little bit. Kind of. Yeah. Question. Yeah, mark. no, absolutely. Yeah, no, <laughs> we, we see a lot of these juxtapositions start to justify themselves. So for example, we had the earlier scene where he falls into his depression and he's very vulnerable, and Alma mm-hmm. loves this. And then we see where he's been poisoned, and once again, he's weak, and he's vulnerable, and Alma's there. And they have a wonderful relationship for this period of time where he's sick and can't be the person that he usually is. And that's contrasted by the very next scene where they do get married after he's been, you know, he lovingly and tenderly expresses how he realizes he's been a dick and he's sorry and he wants to make it up to her and wants to get married and have this very loving relationship. And right away, their honeymoon in the Alps, she's eating again super loudly and we see his face <laughs> and we know that he is thinking, God damn it, I have made a huge mistake. Oh, I just man. love how much they constantly go back to like her being loud at breakfast as the thing that makes him realize like I've made a terrible mistake, right? <laughs> So, yeah, and it was kind of around this time in the film that I started to wonder, man, is this how I am? Is this how I'm going to end up? (laughs) (laughs) I just need to accept that I'm a tragic bachelor and that's just the way it is. Because I'll tell you, sometimes it's a minor shit where I'm like, yeah, I can't deal with that for the rest of my life. This has got to end right now. (laughs) Some stupid shit. Their teeth scrape on the fork? Nope. Deal breaker. Can't do it. Everything yeah. else about them is perfect, but nope, deal breaker, can't do it. You're cutting your nails <laughs> in bed? Are you kidding me? Yeah, you're done though. <laughs> um, and then he and then he gets cross with her at backgammon, and she like yes. wants to go out to new this New Year's party, and he like wants nothing to do with it. He's just harumph. And then you know the doctor starts being a little flirty with her, and then he's like jealous. He's like, "What are you talking about the doctor?" And of course, we've got other people here that are kind of egging them on, like, "Hey, look at that doctor, kind of likes your bride, eh?" And so, you know, we're kind of setting up that. And it's funny, like their dynamic on their honeymoon is of an old married couple, right? (laughs) Like every time she breathes loudly, he like looks up from the newspaper and side eyes her, right? While she's just going about her business and she's chewing her toast loudly and he's side eyeing her and he wants to say something, but he doesn't. It's like they're already (laughs) 12 years into the marriage, 12 hours into the honeymoon. It's hilarious. Yeah. So a couple things. First off, just anecdotally, do you think they've had sex at this point or do you think they ever have sex at all? And how do you think that goes down? I wondered halfway through this film, like, man, like I thought things were coming on hot and heavy at the breakfast, but now that I'm seeing how this all plays out, I'm not sure that they've ever fucked. Not once. Maybe. Once. Maybe. I, I think there's some situations like they do kind of, there's that one scene where he does bring her into the bedroom and they close the door and then it like cuts to the next morning. And I think usually that's supposed to be an insinuation. Cause she sleeps in a separate room, right? They don't sleep together. 
Do they? I don't recall that, to be honest. She stays in it a separate room. It could be. I'm room. not saying it's not. I just, I don't remember. But if you're saying that, then that would make sense. That would trend. I be- yes. And I believe that was, um, you know, uh, that's kind of what struck some importance to when he was poisoned and she stayed in the room with him. Uh, oh, because okay. she's that not supposed sense. to be yeah. in there. She's got a separate room. That's why you know, it. it's all goes back to being a part of the help and her trying to find her place in this whole bit. And something else I wanted to talk to you about that, that really struck, uh, you know, it landed home around this time in the film, but something I noticed all throughout. And I kind of teed it up at the start of this conversation, which is this film completely shifts points of view um, between Alma and Reynolds as it goes back and forth in volleys. Now we are used to seeing in ensemble films. Like we kind of bounce around between characters. Like we've mentioned boogie nights before. That's an ensemble piece where, you know, we're with all these different characters and they're doing all these different things. But this movie is literally a volley back and forth between two people, specifically Alma and Reynolds um, as they go back and forth. And half the film is Alma's story and half the film is Reynolds story. And I even lean more towards this being Alma's story as she is in the first frame of the film by the firelight and ends the film um, by his side. So I would almost say this is a film about Alma, even though Daniel day Lewis is on the cover of the movie and the box art and all of the things to sell the movie. Um, But we are with him half the film as well. And it's much as much about how he's impacting all these people and, you know, his ego and all of these things. So, uh, you know, when they get engaged um, and he comes out of his sickness right before this scene, kind of getting back to the current, um, he says, you know, like you said, uh, I have all these regrets and all these things I must do. You know, now that I've been shown the light, will you marry me? And then, you know, she takes it and says, yes, after a minute of hesitation. And she, and then she throws it back to him and says, will you marry me? And that to me was a wonderful display of the volley of the points of view that they were both sharing because it was his movie um, and it was his story arc and will you marry me? And then she takes it right back and throws it back and says, no, it's my story. Will you marry me? I'm the main character. You're And so I thought that was a, a really wonderfully written power dynamic that, you know, even in those intimate moments where they're sitting on a couch alone together, proposing, there's still that volley. There's still that that where do I fit in, that power dynamic struggle. Did you get any of that? Absolutely. And it falls in line very much with her character, which we actually haven't gone out of our way to talk about. So we can mention that here, which is that one of the great things about the Alma character is that she is the heart and soul of the film with regards to every time Reynolds pushes and does an action that we as an audience say like, wow, sure would be nice if someone gave him a taste of his own medicine. Alma does. So Alma is the only person who has the nerve to talk back to him. And we actually see this several times throughout the film. And again, it reminds me of that old bickering married couple where Reynolds will say something and everyone else will be quiet but he'll say something to Alma and she'll talk back and then he'll try to get the last word and then she'll try to get the last word and then it'll go back and forth. I think there's one, there's one scene early on where they do that and she keeps sniping back at him and he's like, Oh my God, will you just stop? Like he's very much not (laughs) used to people talking back to him. And so that helps us buy in and like the Alma character because we like 
the person that stands up to the big domineering asshole, right? The guy that makes the little snide comments and chirps here and there for the big, powerful, nobody can touch me guy. We love that. We love that guy or girl. And in this case, it's a girl and they infuse that in Alma. So I think that there's a large. So when you talk about her pushing back, she's literally been pushing back since their first date. She's, yeah. she's, or maybe their second, right? But very, very early on, even the breakfast scene, when he says, the, you know, why, why are you making so much noise at breakfast? We get the sense that his first girlfriend at the beginning of the movie would have just sat there wide-eyed, deer in headlights, frozen, uncertain of how to respond. And she says, I'm not making movement. And he's like, yes, you are. It's loud. And she's like, no, I'm, I'm making breakfast. And he's like, well, you're making breakfast very loud. And she's like, well, I don't know how to make breakfast any other way. I'm making breakfast. (laughs) And that in and of itself, and I'm sure there's an element of that's what makes him attracted to her, right? It's that whole thing of like the very powerful person that never hears no. And then all of a sudden someone says no. And they're like, wait a minute. Now I'm intrigued. Who is this person telling me no, right? I just saw the, the tone of the film. It was so interesting to me how the tone of the film shifted depending on who you were with. So when you were with the Reynolds character, you're in his world and the world is judges such, and you're a visitor amongst him and you're going to stand at his feet or whatever, you know, to be judged. But then when you're with her, even when she's doing the most vile, repugnant shit, like poisoning her husband, um, in order to get some attention from him or make him vulnerable enough to show her, uh, attention. Um, it's done in such a way that it's, it's done from a vulnerable standpoint. At times it's funny. Um, and, and a little witty and, and, uh, lighthearted. So mm-hmm. yeah, I thought it was just interesting that the tone shift, the music changed, the way things are shot, um, the, the positioning of the actors and blocking, depending on who is in the power role for that scene. Anyway, uh, I thought, yeah, you know, another credit to the film. Definitely. So let's go ahead and let's discuss this last scene here. After a brief scene where Reynolds find out that the model that he's usually using has left for another house, this causes him to realize that he regrets his marriage to Miss Elma. And he walks into Cyril's room, office, what have you, and sits down and confesses how much he does not like this Alma chick and how he's made a huge mistake. Unbeknownst to him, she's walked in behind him. Yes, the old... Uh, uh, hey, uh, they're standing right behind you. You might want to keep it down. <laughs> that whole thing. Uh, so we get that moment, and she gets to hear firsthand how much he doesn't like her. So what is her response? Is she going to up and leave? No, she is not going to up and leave. She is going to up and gather more poison <laughs> mushrooms and set up this last banana pants crazy scene. So I'm going to describe it real quick, and then... Ryan, if you have an interpretation, you can let us know, or if you just want me to give you mine, but let's go ahead and set it up first. So Alma has gone and retrieved the poisonous yellow mushroom again, and instead of being very covert about its preparation, she decides that she is just going to prepare it openly right in front of him, and at first we see Reynolds watching her with a bit of a suspicious look, and we're not certain if he knows or not, but this goes on for like a minute. And they make some very pointed eye contact, at which point we realize, yes, yes, Reynolds very much knows what is going on here. And they're giving each other looks. She ends up making him an omelet that features this poison mushroom. And 
Once it's done, she serves it in a very loud, <laughs> I thought that was very funny too. She's going out of her way to be as loud as she always is at breakfast, slamming the, the plates down, making sure to pour the water from a very high point so that it makes as much noise as possible. And he's <laughs> just he's just kind just of rubbing it in. Yeah, exactly. And he's just kind of watching her with this sly smile on his face like, I know what you're doing. And we're kind of wondering like, okay, is he gonna is he gonna slap her? Is he gonna kill her? Is he going to throw the food against the plate and make a huge accusation? Like, how is he going to respond? And of all things, he responds by willingly eating this poisonous mushroom and swallowing it down. And when he does, they kind of look at each other lovingly, and she says, I want you lying flat on your back helpless and vulnerable in a very sort of romantic way. That's a quote. And they kiss and they're being very loving towards each other. And then it actually ends with her leaving him like in the bathroom with a vomit bowl to, to, to vomit into with both of them kind of giving very sweet, loving, batting eyes towards one another. That's the final scene of this movie. So Ryan, Give me your interpretation or just let me know you didn't know what the hell is going on. But what is your response to this? Yeah. I mean, they're sitting in the bathroom together, I believe. And he's got like a bowl to throw up in. And and she's like, I should excuse myself. And he's like, no, no, you shouldn't. And this and that. And they're like, there's all these really endearing words. And then the yeah. movie just ends with phantom thread on the screen or what have you. Like yeah. these two toxic people are just going to live miserably ever after, I guess they found a way to adapt to each other's bullshit. I don't know, man, this was a weird one for me. <laughs> it almost kind of just left you hanging in the way that the I'm finished scene leaves you hanging in there will be blood um, okay. at the yeah. bowling alley where it's just like Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to take you down this road in this character study. And he gets to a point where he's like, all right, you've seen enough. We're leaving. You know, we excuse ourselves and that's the end. He sees you out. Almost like yeah. like he is the serial character <laughs> excusing you from his movie. He's like, all right, enough then. You know, I'll see you <laughs> off. Um, and that's how he gets rid of people from his films. He just kind of wraps them up. But um, yeah. All right. I just, well, I mean, uh, we're left to presume that Daniel Day-Lewis understands, uh, Reynolds Woodcock understands that um, being poisoned is the way he gets vulnerable and that the way he's able to connect <laughs> to her character, Alma's character. And yeah. uh, they, and I mean, they're just going to go along this way. Yes. And I, and I, and I, and I, and I think that like just on a surface level, that's what it is, but to just sort of, I think make it a little bit more pointed and what this is saying about everything is this is in its very strange way. This is Reynolds's come to Jesus moment is how I interpreted this, okay? He's had certainly girlfriends before the first one. The first one represents probably every relationship he's had since then. And then he meets Alma, who's different. She pushes back. They have a different relationship than he's ever had before, okay? And even in spite of this, even in spite of the fact that he recognizes Alma as probably the perfect woman for him, he still can't fucking stand her by the end of it. OK, <laughs> she is loud. She choose all of the all of the wonderful things that she brings to the table, which could be a huge laundry list of of qualities are going to be outdone by the fact that she chews loudly. 
that's how petty he is. That's how incapable of loving another person Reynolds Woodcock is. Illustrated and reinforced by the earlier scene we talked about after they get the dress back. He doesn't love her in that moment. He loves he loves himself and he loves the fact that she reminds him how great he is. He doesn't love her for who she is. This end scene is Woodcock understanding that he cannot be saved. There is no helping this man. He knows this. He recognizes this woman is perfect for him. And even in spite of that, he cannot bring himself to love her. So the only way that he is going to be able to experience love is by agreeing to take part in this very fucked up ritual of their relationship where he poisons himself to the point that he cannot be the person that he is on a day-to-day basis. He has to become almost metamorphosized into a different person that is a weak little baby lamb. And when he is a weak little baby lamb who is a different person, he can love. So he understands at that moment he is a man incapable of love. And this is the only way that he will get to experience love. And that's how I interpret this film and this scene. Yes. <laughs> I, don't have a, I mean, I don't have yeah, a rebuttal. I, that's uh, yes. Um, but it's, it's still pretty fucked up. Oh, no. It, that's what I'm saying. It's 100% fucked up. And that's what's so wonderful about the scene is this is a movie that really shouldn't have anything fucked up. If you just take it in a vacuum... It's not really, it doesn't call attention to how messed up it is. It's not a David Lynch movie or something like that. And it's like, oh my God, look at these guys doing this crazy relationship. Like it just sells it like it's a beautiful romantic thing. And you're like, oh, that's sweet. And then you take a step back and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Does that mean, and you add up everything and you're like, wow, that is, that, that is batshit crazy. That is an insane relationship that these two people can only love each other when one of them is half poisoned because he's he's incapable of love and this is the closest that he can get. That is bizarre and I will admit I have not seen that expressed elsewhere, which makes it such a unique and admirable storyline. It's so last minute tagged on too because like it's, but so it's funny not. Reading. It goes back to the first time he was. It goes back to the first time that he has depression. That's what's so wonderful about this. They're setting this moment up, thirty minutes into the film, with that scene where he gets depressed, and for those three days after, he is incapable of doing anything. At which point, he's vulnerable, and she takes care of him, and they have a loving relationship. And that moment triggers. Her thought to do that when she finds the poisonous mushroom 20, 30 minutes later, which triggers her to do this final scene. It's 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 not a last minute thing. It's set up at the very beginning. And that's why the payoff is so wonderful. Well, I mean, it's it's set up. Yeah, it is set up. But it wasn't just moments before this that he was going to the New Year's Eve dance to go collect his wife like he lost his things. Not to go yeah, exactly. That scene is set up as and, if and he's going to go have this magical um, understanding, and like that was supposed to be the come to Jesus moment that he like sends his wife to go dance alone at New Year's Eve, and then he goes down there, and then you think that he's going to go like you know storm the dance floor and go yeah like, exactly have this romantic moment with his wife, and all he does is collect her and say let's go home, and then they bail yeah. right like 
Absolutely. There's no romantic kiss or I'm so sorry, honey, I love you or any of these things that you realize at that point you're getting to the end of the movie. So there's got to be a resolve and that ain't it. The resolve but that, but is. It, but, it, but it serves the resolve because it does. it's that yes. realization. He like that, that because you expect that and he can't do that in that moment. That's his like, oh, shit. Like there is something seriously wrong with me. Right. I think that and, and I think that's why that happens is because. Um, like you said, it's it's the perfect romantic comedy, like guy runs and sweeps her off her feet, even set up to the point that there's very obviously an insinuation that like Woodcock is expecting her to be like cheating on him or dancing with the doctor or getting kind of inappropriate. And like he's going to catch her messing around. Right. And yeah, she doesn't like he sees her and she's just dancing playfully like Kate Winslet in Titanic or something like that on the bottom. Right. Deck. Right. Yeah. And then he kind of softens yeah. a sec. And that's when you think that's going to happen. And then he's like, come on, let's go. And they leave. And again, it's that even in that moment, he still can't show her love. And that sets up the following scene with the poison. Right. So, I mean, the, the, the whole thing with the poison, yes, is set up. The whole vulnerability thing, yes, is set up. What's not set up is him going, him being able to accept that poison me and this is how this relationship is going to move forward from now on. You're just going to have to poison me with poison mushrooms every once in a while to fucking kill my ego. Yeah. Um, that was <laughs> well, a what the fuck moment. That's what yeah, I'm talking about. Absolutely. And I, th- but I think that was intentional because, this. yeah, I think that was, I think that's a PTA move where he, he didn't want to telegraph it, but have enough foreshadowing that if you go back, it's right there. And that's kind of exactly what we just mentioned. So I think that was 100% exactly PTA's intent. And I think he just executed flawlessly. And how it is executed, because again, like them laughing in the bathroom while he's throwing up more or less, you don't see it, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but it's like, you know, no, this is hilarious. They're like all giggling, like, you know, new lovers and stuff. Like they just found this new way to you know, spark, bring this spark into their relationship. It's like, you know, the people that have been married for 15 years that all of a sudden are like, Ooh, you want to watch porn? And they're all like flirty about it. And they're like, yeah, yeah exactly. what, what do you like? And they're like all giggling, <laughs> except it's about poisonous mushrooms and then puke it. Exactly. On yeah. So that's, 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 that's what I mean by the, awesome like, the tacked on what twist. the fuck moment. Cause right yeah. before that we see their, their relationship dynamic. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, they're falling in love over the a bathroom puke bucket. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking so weird, dude. Absolutely. Oh, PTA, we love you so. We love you so much. Don't stop being you. And that brings <laughs> us to the end of Phantom Thread. Real quick, before we get to the adjectives, do you want to throw out there to the listeners that we would love to hear what you have to say about this ending? Did it work for you? Did it, did it not? Did you find it as what the fuck banana pants crazy as we did? If so, you can always send us your thoughts to esotericus at gmail.com or as we would prefer go ahead and hit up our esoterica cinema hotline we're looking for some clips we want to get them on the air we want to hear what you have to say about this film you can call 818-483-6285 and let us know your thoughts with that being said ryan i'm going to go ahead and ask you for your three adjectives that sum up your experience with phantom thread my first one is masterpiece because it is man on every Every step of the way, this movie was just flawlessly executed. Um, uh, I have in my notes here, this is like Stanley Kubrick making Annie Hall. That's what this movie <laughs> felt like to me. Um, yeah, it was uh, not necessarily the subject matter that I would have been into, which brings me to my next one, which is this is the world's best scone. Uh, I do not like scones. <laughs> um, I, you know, there are a lot of things I don't like in this world, but if you tell me something is the world's best version of that, you have to like try it. Right. And yeah. 
It's the world's best scone. I don't usually like scones, but it's so buttery and so moist and right <laughs> out of the damn oven. And you're like, you know, got to give it up. That's the world's best scone. I don't usually <laughs> like scones, but if I was going to like one, this is the one. Uh, right. Brings me to my last one. This is a cinematic vacation. Like I said at the top of the episode, uh, this I felt like I was just... Everywhere the camera took me, I felt like I was in the moment, just steeped in all the things, whether it's the moisture of the seaside or the cold weather when they're putting on jackets and scarves. It's like, oh, it's a little nippy in here, isn't it? I want to go get a sweatshirt, you know? I'm fucking in Florida. (laughs) It's 80 degrees, you know? Um, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So it's a cinematic vacation. Uh, PTA took me for a ride and I loved him for it. How about you, Jason? Absolutely. So my first one, unassuming, just like I said, every time you look around, like if you just look, watch two or three minutes of this film in a vacuum with no context, you're going to be like, what the hell are these two guys talking about? This thing looks boring. I, you know, this is not something I want to check out, but it's going to surprise you. I promise you it's going to surprise you. And there's going to be something about it that captures you that you just kind of can't put your finger on. In a, and I think kind of coupled with that is my second one is it's an assured film. This film knows exactly what it wants to do the entire time. Paul Thomas Anderson is always two steps ahead of his audience, whether it's the setting up of the poison early on, any number of aspects of this film, you get the sense that. The score is exactly the score that Johnny Greenwood intended. The performances are exactly the performances that Day-Lewis and Creeps intended. The film is exactly what Paul Thomas Anderson intended. The look, everything about this film just feels like everybody executed to 100% of their vision, which was very impressive. And finally, I referenced it earlier, one of our famously hyphenated adjectives, greater than the sum of its parts. Once again, kind of in keeping with that unassuming quality, if you show me a few minutes of this film in a vacuum, I'm not going to be impressed. You know, you can tell me that it's got a great score. Okay, cool. Yeah, score is great. Um, you can you can show me the cinematography. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. You can show me the acting. Okay, yeah, it's good. But when you add all of that together and synthesize it into one singular package, it's this amazing overwhelming of just your senses and your engagement and your attention. Uh, Again, it was not a film that I expected to enjoy nearly to the degree that I did. And I'm just, I mean, not a lot happens. I still stand by the fact that not a lot happens in this film. This is like, you know, going to get groceries and a Rolls Royce, you know, it's like you just went to go get groceries, but you did it in a fucking Rolls Royce. And that's actually a pretty cool experience. And you get to, you know, do one for the gram and take a selfie in the Rolls Royce. So, you know, this was fantastic movie. I loved it. Jason, what'd you grade this baby? I kind of went back and forth, man. Uh, at the end of the day, I, I couldn't help myself. And, and again, you said it, it's a flawless masterpiece, whether it's your film or not. It's a flawless masterpiece deserving Respect. of five stars out of five. I got to give it the full record. There's nothing wrong with this film. Damn. I loved it. I want to watch it again. Love you, buddy. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. No, there's just I, – I, I kept trying to bring it down because I was like, you know, oh, like, again, you know, it's sort of like I gave uh, four and three quarters to election because it's maybe not the film that, like, most represents the type of films that I get off on. This is kind of the same – and I kept trying to convince myself otherwise, but I was like, dude, at the end of the day, nothing wrong. Five star films. What you got for your grade rating? 
I'm giving it an A minus. I knocked it down right. a little bit. I did the knockdown for us. <laughs> <laughs> this right, is not a movie I would did. recommend to just anybody. It's not something I could put on at any time. It's probably not a movie I'll watch again for a little bit um, as nothing really happens. And once you kind of get the gist, but it is a masterpiece and it's the most perfect version of this. So I'm going to knock it down a couple scotches just for being a scone, uh, but it is the world's best scone. So <laughs> A minus. <laughs> Awesome. And yeah, so to anybody listening that wants to get in touch with us, of course, like I said, we love to hear about your thoughts on our movies. We love to hear about your thoughts on our opinions. We love to hear about your thoughts on any pastry related food item, muffins, scones now, obviously in the discussion, crepes. We're very big crepe people. You can do all of that by reaching out to us at esotericacinema at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at Esoterica Cinema. Once again, we do have the Esoterica Cinema hotline for you, 818-483-6285. We'd love to hear what you have to say there. And you can also go to the website. The website is looking good these days. If you haven't yet, go check out our refresh. We've got a brand new logo. We updated the site. We've got web players. We've got all sorts of links to various initiatives. And the website is looking really, really strong these days. There's also a contact form that you can use to reach out to us if you don't want to go through your own email client or give us a call. And then in addition to that, we have our master list with all 200 films on there that we pull from at the end of each episode to see what we will be watching next week. And with that in mind, Ryan, let's go ahead and pull this film. So as always, we're going to go to our random.org true random number generator plug in one through 200. We are going to pull up our master list, which again, if you would like to play along right now, if you're uh, maybe at work and just looking to kill some time, please don't do this if you're driving. Go ahead and go to esotericacinema.com. You don't even have to download the PDF. It's just right there on the page. You can follow along. One through 200. Let's see what we got, Ryan. Rolling them dice, rolling them dice, rolling them dice, rolling them dice to <laughs> 33. We've got item 33. So go ahead 33. and go check out your yes! list. Oh, I'm so <laughs> okay. excited for this. Right, got, what <laughs> a fucking roller coaster this year has wow. been. Dude, yes, this could not be more different than uh, Paul Thomas Anderson prestige dressmaker film. So firstly, let's mention what we didn't get. Right above at number 32, we have the Werner Herzog and Klaus Kinski collaboration, the last one they ever did, Cobra Verde. And then after that, we actually have a very interesting indie film. I know you recommended it initially. I've seen it come up a few other places, which it's kind of like apparently like a horror comedy. Uh, and that would be Dave Made a Maze, which I've actually heard really, really wonderful things about. But we're not doing either of those today. Today we're doing number 33, which is Critters. Critters. The all-time classic B-movie Critters. That oh, I'm so I have excited. Not, I have never seen Critters. Have you seen it before? I have not. Oh my God, we have got two self-proclaimed horror trash film aficionados that have never seen Critters. And yet, Ryan, I'm sure just like me, you can picture the video art box in your head right this very two moment. Two Critters virgins. Yeah, pretty excited. <laughs> it says on the box art, the battle began in another galaxy and it's about to end in the Brown's backyard. IMDb has this summarized as a group of small but vicious alien creatures called Critters escape from an alien prison transport vessel and land near a small farm town on Earth, pursued by two shape-shifting bounty hunters. 
Oh boy, Jason. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Oh, I'm yeah. so happy. And it's cool too, because I mean, we did get, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, Sultan Precinct 13, but like we had we Sweet did. Smell. That's a little bit of a prestige picture. We had Phantom Thread. That's a little bit of a prestige picture. And Amadeus. even though, yeah, Amadeus, the prestige picture. And we haven't actually done anything that's like horror. Now, if I understand, I think you may have the same opinion. It's it's like a horror comedy, right? I think it's, Yeah. I, I think my it's take a horror on it. comedy instead of a instead of a strict horror, but we're definitely going to find out here. So now I do know this is a movie. It that is a lot listed of as a horror there. comedy sci-fi on. Okay, IMDb, great. Oh, dude, to be clear, check, check, check. I am so in, and I know a lot of people. You know, I spawned what at least four sequels, if not more, and so really looking forward to finally getting to the original critters. I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. If you haven't. Go ahead and watch that in advance of our next episode in two weeks. We will see you next week for another five-minute review. And then following that, we will catch you for Critters right here at Esoterica Cinema.